0: Welcome to Elevate, the masterclass where we dissect the elements of exceptional achievement and lifestyle design with a focus on personal growth
1: and real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Tyler Chesser. Elevate Nation, welcome back. This is Tyler Chesser. I'm so thankful to have you here, and I'm blessed and grateful to be sitting with Annie Duke today. The, I call her the woman, the myth, the legend, Annie Duke, the former World Series of Poker champion uh, amazing, amazing individual, amazing author, um, amazing thought leader and really mindset expert. Uh, I read her book just a few months ago, thinking in bets. And I was so pleasantly surprised. One of the greatest books I've read in several years. And I read a lot and, um, I have to say that I was blown away by this book and I highly recommend it. And she's got another one coming out here soon called how to decide simple tools for making better choices. At the end of the day. You know, I think some of the most valuable tools that you can really up level your, your life and your business, uh, through is really through thinking, using your mind, understanding how to make better choices and, and make better decisions. And we got a couple of quotes here, you know, one of which from Tony Robbins, uh, the man, the myth, the legend, I mean, that's the other guy, right? It is in your moments of decision that your destiny is shaped. Tony Robbins says, and you know, that's true. I mean, every single moment of your life, you're making a decision one way or another. So let's talk about how to make great decisions and let's talk about, we're going to definitely talk about that today. I also have another quote um, and I think it's super relevant for today's discussion. It's by the Roman emperor Marcus Aurelius. He says, you have power over your mind, not outside events. So obviously that's super relevant in today's climate where you know, there's a lot of challenging things happening. Um, you know, there's a lot of things outside of many of our control. And so, you know, it's a matter of how do you use your mind from a mindful perspective and understand that, you know, it's not about what happens. It's about how do you respond to it, but also how do you think and how do you act? Because your thoughts are your emotions, you know, your thoughts become emotions, which become actions. So, how can you own your mindset? How can you own your actions? How can you own your results as a result of taking control of your mind and understanding you know that it is an uncertain world, but luck comes into play, uncertainty comes into play. But what can you do to be a master uh, within all of those frameworks? So, I want to welcome you back to the show where our mission is to identify and apply how the best of the best raise the bar personally and professionally to achieve greatness in real estate and beyond. And you know what, we sit down for mind-expanding conversations with influential authorities in real estate, as well as top experts in other industries and disciplines. And absolutely, Annie Duke falls into that category. And I have to ask you the question that I always ask you, are you ready to take it to another level? Today is that day. And you know it's always that day, but today's a special one for sure. So definitely wanna encourage you to uh, get settled there, to pay close attention, And you're probably going to re-listen to this show uh, because there's going to be a ton of value in it. And, you know, we will distill from Annie the mindset, the habits, the routines, systems, the tools and strategies for thinking and bets for how to make great decisions. You know, the simple tools for making better choices. You know, we're absolutely going to do that because Annie has and continues to elevate to a life without limits. And she also shows you the way as well. So, First of all, I highly recommend her book, Thinking and Bets. Uh, I can definitely say that myself. And I can only imagine if it's anything like this book, you definitely want to go check out how to decide that is coming out uh, very, very soon. And Elevate is a masterclass for leaders and those looking to achieve uncommon results and purposeful outcomes through personal growth, real estate investing, other ventures, and most importantly, and ultimately in their lives. If you appreciate what we're doing on the show, Certainly be grateful if you subscribed, it means the world to me uh, because we're putting in a ton of work uh, to the show and it's a ton of, it's like a, it's a passion project. You know what I mean? It's uh, a lot of what we do here is to give, it's to help you expand your mind, it's to help you expand your future and really so that you can live a life of fulfillment so that you can live a life that you don't just tolerate. You actually show up and you jump out of bed because you know you have a purpose in your life. You have impact, and we all have purpose in our life. Uh, only few of us, only some of us, are those who step up to the plate and really own that purpose and really create something, you know, with meaning and with impact, and that you know lasts as far as the legacy. And so you know what that is yourself. Uh, you have that within you, and if you listen to these shows and you start to take action on what we talk about, I think you'll start to uncover that even further if you haven't already. So. You know, continue to have courage. Continue to have faith that your purpose will show. And we're going to continue to show up here on the show. So if you're appreciating what we're doing, share this with a friend. You know, send this in a text message, tag somebody on social media. You know, the fee that you pay for showing up and listening to this show—it's free. Uh, it's 100% free. The only fee that we ask for from you is to share this with someone else, uh, because our mission is really to help millions of people. To help millions of people understand that you can live a life. Of fulfillment through constantly investing in your personal growth and constantly understanding that your mind is your greatest asset and your heart and your passion and the way that you show up and the the tools, the tactics, the strategies for real estate investing towards creating practical wealth and cash flow and all of these things that we love about real estate, you know, that can give you the ability of traveling, of You know, living without fear or uncertainty about where your next meal is going to come from or how you're going to pay your bills. That's what we love about real estate. And so, obviously, we talk a lot about that. We talk a lot about personal growth because, you know what, 80% of your success in anything is your psychology. As Tony Robbins says, 20% is the mechanics. So, we're absolutely following the 80 20 rule on this show. And I want to encourage you also to check us out on Facebook. We've got Elevate Podcast Community where you can go and engage further with the tribe, learn more about other people, engage in a deeper conversation about the show, about different episodes that you've loved. So go check us out there, Elevate Podcast Community. Of course, elevatepod.com. We've got a ton of resources on the brand new website over there. So much, so much that you can really dig into, sink your teeth into, and hopefully gain a ton of value further beyond just listening. So you want to be a participant. You don't want to just be a consumer. So what can you do to participate? And you know what? At the end of the day, I want to introduce you to Annie Duke, who is an author. She's a corporate speaker and a consultant in the decision making space. Annie's book, Thinking in Bets, Making Smarter Decisions When You Don't Have All the Facts, is a national bestseller. As I said, it's a phenomenal book. I really, really enjoyed it. And she's an extremely intelligent individual. So you'll definitely want to check out that book if you haven't already. As a former professional poker player, Annie won more than $4 million in in tournament poker before retiring from the game in 2012. Prior to becoming a professional player, Annie was awarded the national science of fellowship uh, to study cognitive psychology at the university of Pennsylvania. Annie is the co-founder of the Alliance for decision education a nonprofit whose mission is to improve lives by empowering students through decision skills education. She is also the member of the National Board of After School All-Stars and the Board of Directors of the Franklin Institute. In 2020, she joined the Board of the Renew Democracy Initiative and she is an absolutely multifaceted individual. So please enjoy this wide ranging and super thought provoking conversation with Annie Duke. Annie, welcome to the show. How are you?
2: Uh, I'm good today. Sunny out? What more could you ask for?
1: Oh, my gosh. Well, you know what? Sometimes I have to remind myself that even when it's not sunny, I should be good, right? I got to make the choice that today is going to be good. I mean, do you ever have that? Like yourself, you've got to choose to set your path for your day.
2: Huh, that's interesting. I'm generally in a good mood, so I'm actually pretty happy when it's raining as well. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm trying to think when I... I don't know. I'm kind of an optimistic person,
1: so. I love that. Well, and, yeah. and there's a concept that I learned about a few years ago called equanimity, which I'm sure you're familiar with, and it's just about like if it's not, we're not talking about weather, we're talking about metaphorically. You like you know, to take day. things as they come. Right. It's, it's like let's. It yeah. It's good. We're still good. We just yeah. this is our emotional home. I find that right. to be exactly. really interesting. If you can own yeah. your emotions. It's
2: right. been interesting during the pandemic because people have asked me, you know, you know, how are you, and it's that kind of schism, you know, cause like on a personal level, I'm really fine for that reason. Mm. Now I'm a real kind of like roll with it kind of person. I kind of, I, I sort of don't let a lot of stuff sort of take me over, which may, I don't know, chicken or egg, you know, maybe because why I was good at poker, it may have come out of my playing poker, mm. but like on a macro level in terms of kind of what's happening on a, in a more global sense, I've, I've had a ton of unease. So, I feel like when yeah. someone asks me how I am, I'm like in like what exactly what do you mean by that <laughs> because i can, I can give you totally different answers.
1: Yeah. And you can almost hear the tone in someone's voice when they add like, how are you doing? Yeah. And it's like, or it's like, hey, how's it going? And it's like, right. they want you to add, answer it in a certain way. And so like, of course, you know, you feel, you know, obviously a lot of empathy for everyone that's going through a lot of challenge right now. But at the same time, maybe you can hold two thoughts in your mind at one time where you can still be optimistic about your own circumstances and perhaps others as well. Is that where you're going with this?
2: Yeah, no, I mean, I, I just think that we, you know, we have different selves and different things that we're thinking about and that you can, you can kind of hold those things in your head at once. And I, I have, I have found that I think that people during the pandemic are reluctant to say that they are okay. Yeah. I think because there are obviously these these global issues and there's, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of suffering obviously going on right now. And, you know, I, like many people, I'm very keenly aware that I can literally do my whole job on a computer. Yeah. Right. I don't, I don't need, I have no need to be exposing myself. And I understand what a privileged position that puts me in. I totally get it. Um, But what I find is that uh, I think that people are reluctant to say that they're okay. Mm. Um, Because things are really, you know, things are really kind of awful Uh, In other ways. And I feel both of those things at time. I'm I'm like, I'm like Schrodinger's cat. I am both okay and not okay. It just, it just depends on kind of like, sort of what, where, where am I, what perspective am I sort of standing in?
1: Mm -hmm. Um,
2: And I think that's totally fine. I think it's fine to feel many things at once.
1: Yeah, and and talk to me a little bit more about the different selves because I've learned a little bit about this, but it's interesting because like you hear about this like oh you have multi personality disorder or whatever or you know is that a thing? I mean most most human beings have multiple personalities, right? You have different selves. So talk to me a little bit more about what you know about that. Yeah,
2: well, so like I don't know in a clinical sense about <laughs> multiple personality disorder, right? Right. Um, but we we all you know, we're all different people at different times. And actually the neurology on this is really interesting. So so the place where you really get into different versions of you um, is when you think about on a time scale. So there's like the version of you that exists right now. There's some version of you that exists in the past and there's sort of different past versions of yourself. And then there's versions of you that will exist in the future. So actually, uh, Parfit, who's a philosopher, kind of thinks about that as like if you, uh, if you cut paper dolls, you know, that we spread this out, and it's like lots of different versions of you that are both sort of connected but also individual, um, and the neurology on this is actually quite interesting, that uh, if I have you in a, a, like a PET scan or an MRI, I'm doing imaging of your brain, and... I ask you to imagine like yourself going into a store and you're describing it like you're going into a store and you're buying things and whatever, it will recruit certain parts of your brain. Then if I ask you to talk about a stranger, like someone you've never met in a store and you're sort of describing that it's a, diff- a lot of different parts of your brain get recruited because you're sort of thinking about an other.
0: Mm.
2: So what's interesting is if I ask you to tell a story about yourself in like a year from now, what happens is that a lot of the more of the other parts of the, like the brains that are sort of like for thinking about others um, start to get recruited. Hmm. So in that sense, like you, as you exist in a year is, is a different person. They are a stranger to you. What's interesting is that um, that actually can be used as like a huge advantage in decision-making because the when you're in the moment of making a decision when you are sort of pulled down into that gravity well of all the things that like everything that's like immediately on the horizon starts to get kind of magnified and um whatever emotions are going on with you right then will feel very powerful and uh we'll very often like lose sight of our long-term goals and we'll you know our our kind of intertemporal choice falls apart and we'll lose sight of our long-term goals goals and we're eating all the marshmallows at once and (laughs) all that stuff, that you can actually use this this way that like the future you is a little bit of a stranger to you, right? Is a little bit like another person because the thing that we know is that we're more rational in a lot of ways watching other people do things than we are watching ourselves do things, right? So, it's very easy, for example, uh, when you're watching television to see somebody else's bias showing through, mm-hmm. right? Like, oh, that's totally confirmation bias, or they're completely cherry-picking the data, or, you know, it's so easy to see, but when you do it yourself, you sort of lose sight of that. So if you can actually sort of time travel into that version of yourself in the future to look back on your decision now prior to making the decision, you actually can sort of act as your own outside observer in that way, Um, and it it will actually improve your decision-making.
1: Yeah, I think it was so interesting. you were talking about your future self in the book, uh, thinking in bets, just because of the fact that, you know, to me, like when you really step back from just that discussion of your future self, it, it seems like it's like okay, maturity, right? Let's let's make decisions and think about how we're going to feel about this tomorrow or a year down the road. And and you know, if you think about it, it's like it, it kind of gets pretty simple. But we also lose that because we're not always rational beings. I mean, like how have you how have you drawn your experiences from playing? Poker Poker to now being a consultant, being a thought leader on the mind and and how to utilize this, you know, I, I was talking to uh, who is it? Uh, I think it was oh my gosh, it was uh, John Azraf recently. He he was on the podcast and he was telling me, look, we've got a trillion dollar value brain within our within our bodies or more, and most of us don't have the user's manual. But it seems like you have kind of cracked this user's manual, so to speak, in many different ways. I mean. I guess I'm kind of rambling here, but you know, what fascinates you about the mind and what other regions of the mind have you not been able to crack yet and what are you really interested in now?
2: So actually, so it's interesting. So I, I actually don't feel like I've cracked anything. I think that what I've kind of figured out uh is that is a couple of things. The first thing is that you don't have to crack it you just have to clean up around the edge like you have to do a little bit better so i am totally succumbing to cognitive bias there is no question that my decisions are quite noisy as well like there's i'm committing so many errors all errors that i write about I'm just doing it a little bit less. Mm. And that idea of sort of losing this sight of like, somehow we're supposed to overcome completely sort of the mind that's installed at birth. And all of a sudden we're going to be like perfectly rational beings who are never, you know, falling prey to confirmation bias or, um, uh, you know, making every decision in a way that would be completely analytical and, you know, totally rational. Mm -hmm. It's absurd. So I think I've kind of just like gotten off my own case in that sense. And I said, the thing that I understand is that it doesn't so much matter how I'm doing compared to perfectly rational. What matters is that I'm doing better than I used to do. And I'm doing better than maybe other people who might be making similar decisions. I think this is um, very much a poker mindset because in poker, you're just so completely confronted with the fact that uh, there's just a lot of uncertainty And whatever the objectively best decision is, you're pretty much never going to land on it ever because it's just like, there's, there's, it's too hard. Like there's too much that you don't know. And there's layers and layers of stuff that you don't know. I don't just know, like not know what cards you have. I also don't know how you're going to react to those cards. Mm -hmm. Right? Like, and I'm trying to like build all these models out. And so it's just freaking hard. But if I'm better than the other people at doing that thing, that's enough. And I don't have to be very much better either, by the way. I can just be a little bit better. And it's enough because you're sort of turning those decisions. You make thousands of decisions every single day. If you're a little bit better at all of those, you're going to be pretty good to go. So I think that's the first piece. It's like I sort of think about it relative to past versions of myself or relative to uh, the ability that other people might have to sort of mitigate or dampen the effect of, of these kinds of cognitive errors, you know, on decision making. That's, that's kind of number one. And then the other thing is that I, I think that number two is that I have just sort of figured out that the only, the only real solution to this stuff is to get other people to discipline your decision-making. It's, you, you have to be getting really solid and unadulterated feedback from other people. And as much as it might hurt in the moment, your ability to either be a little bit less defensive, or even if your initial reaction is defensive, to get over the defensive more quickly, the defensiveness more quickly than you might have, so that you can actually hear what the person is saying and incorporate it, um, that that's the only way to be. That you, you have to be seeking out other people's opinions. You have to be as open-minded as possible. And again, that doesn't mean you're gonna be perfect at it. Uh, trust me. I get defensive when people critique my ideas, but then I sort of, you know, I think I'm a little faster at sort of adjusting and, and kind of saying, wait a minute, let me try to hear that. So like, I'll tell you a story actually from the writing of my, my of how to decide the, the book that's coming out. Um, so I, how to decide was like a super, it was a, it, that book was a big struggle for me. Um, I was working, you know. I'm, I was doing it, and I have to just—I have to call out Michael Mobison here because he was—he was so amazing. As I was writing the book, he—he, he, I would send chapters to him, and he was giving me really like in-depth comments and really helping me, just kind of like in a thought partnership way, and kind of checking the things that he sort of felt like maybe I wasn't being clear on or that I needed to restate. And um, just was so incredibly helpful. But I remember him writing me in uh, last summer. And just saying, like, how's it going? And I think I wrote that back one word, which was despair. Um, it, and, and the reason why this, this book, I think, was really, really hard for me to write, there, there were a few reasons, but it, a little bit had to do with the evolution of it. So when I originally sold the book, I sold it as uh, a thinking in Bets workbook. That's what I was planning to write. And my idea was that uh, I had had enough people come up to me after having read Thinking in Bets. And say, um, really like the book, love this idea. Like, there's lots of uncertainty, and you know, how do you actually know what an outcome means, and you know, so on and so forth. But like, how would I make a good decision? How would I do this? Mm-hmm. So, I kept getting that feedback. Like this, you know, there's a little bit of how in Thinking in best, but it's mostly a why book. Mm-hmm. Um. And so I was like, oh, maybe yeah, I should write a how book for that. But it was really going to be, and you can imagine, like, what I'm selling them is a super simple book to write. It's like, look at page 27, making about bet that here's an exercise that you can do for it. So, um, so I sell the book as that, and that's what I had in my mind. And then my editor, who has amazing instincts, comes back to me and she says, I, hey, I have an idea. I think you should decouple this from thinking in bets because I think this is a book that like people would read like on its own merits. Um, So what do you think about that? That I wanted you to write a book that someone who had never read thinking in bets could totally read this book, totally understand it, totally get something out of it. So, you know, I was like, sure, it sounds good, broader audience, great. And I didn't really realize like what I was getting myself into, which was now I needed to write a book that wasn't going to be boring for people who read thinking in bats. Cause now it's no longer just exercises. I have to have explanation in there now too. Right. So I can't bore, bore people who've read the thinking in bats with the explanation, but I also have to make it like super understandable for people who've never read. Like, okay. So now I've like left myself, <laughs>
0: like, <laughs> like
2: narrow little alley that I have to go through. So, so I write the, like the first two chapters, I think. And I'm really like this is a big problem that I'm now having. Like how do I actually thread this needle now, right? Of not being boring but also being understandable. Um and so I write these two chapters and like the struggle was real. Um and I turn them in and I what I did was I took this approach that was like a little more regimented, where I was like, Here's some writing, here's a prompt, here it's horrible. Anyway, I turn it in and I'm thinking I'm feeling pretty good about it. Um, and Nikki just, she writes me back. It was like, I should pull the email up for it. I mean, it was literally the worst feedback I've ever gotten on anything I've ever read in my life. And I'd sent it to a couple other friends of mine who were a little bit nicer. And they were like, where are you in this book? I don't <laughs> see you. It doesn't sound like you. And of course it didn't sound like me because I was like struggling with how to thread this needle. But anyway, she gave me this really harsh feedback, like harsh, harsh, harsh. Um, so I called up my agent and this was like during the first six hours, this was my reaction. She doesn't know who this audience is for (laughs) and I'm imagining that it's going to be, you know, anyway, I, it was a whole thing of like how mad I was that I had gotten this feedback. And then after about six hours, and this is what I'm saying, like, you don't even, of course you're gonna be defensive sometimes. Like it's not fun to get bad feedback, but after about six hours, by this time, my agent had scheduled a call with Nikki. Um, for the next day, and and after six hours, after this like complete like meltdown that I had, I I text my agent. I go, she's totally right. <laughs> so now we get on the phone the next day, and Mickey's trying to Nikki's rather is trying to like soft pedal it because I think she realizes like, oh my gosh, maybe I was a little bit too harsh, but she wasn't. She was like exactly as harsh as she needed to be, and so she was a little soft pedaling. And I'm like Nikki, stop soft pedaling. You're completely right. This is crap. So it was like six weeks worth of work. And it was like, this is crap. I have to start over. Oof. So I started over and I turned in the new first chapter to her. And she said, I have never seen a bigger difference in my life between the first chapter and the, the first try and the second try. And it's because she gave me the horrible feedback because She let me see that the way that I was trying to solve this problem I was having was creating a really terrible product in a way that like, I think that I, I sort of decided in my head that I was pretty proud of it, but it was horrible. And I maybe couldn't see that myself because I was so caught up in this own dilemma that I was having. But this is what I'm saying. Like, Thank God I got somebody else's eyes on it early in the process who got to tell me that it was a piece of crap. So that I could then throw it out and start over with. And as painful as that might have been, definitely better for my future self. I'm very, very proud of the book that I wrote. And it ended up uh, actually freeing me up. I realized that what I needed to do is not be tethered at all to thinking in bed So while it starts in the exact same place, because it has to, because you have to talk about how do you learn from experience. It immediately goes, like once you get past like the first chapter and a half, it's, and even in the first chapter, it's all this new material. And then it just goes into this other place where I sort of think about thinking and bats is uh, much more an exploration of luck in the way that luck kind of gets in between your decisions and the outcomes. And this book is much more an exploration of hidden information. And how do you improve the quality of the information
1: mm-hmm. that you're
2: getting from the world? And that circles back to this thing that happened with Nikki, which is the whole point is I got really good information from her that was really helpful to me and made what I got to put out into the world much better. And I think that that's the thing that I've really learned over my life is you are a terrible judge of Mm -hmm. what you know. You're a terrible judge of how confident you should be. You're a terrible judge of whether you're approaching the world in a way that's meant to confirm the things that you believe. You're a terrible judge of which beliefs you have that are inaccurate and which ones aren't what you know and what you don't know. So you have to start to recruit other people into that process or you're not going to do a good job.
1: This episode of elevate is brought to you by CF capital, a real estate investment firm formed by myself and my partner, Brian Flaherty, where we invest in multifamily real estate communities across the Southeast United States. If you'd like to learn more about our approach, our mission, our acquisition criteria and how you can learn more about future opportunities visit cfcapllc.com. Again, that's cfcapllc.com. Yeah. No, that's super valuable. And how ironic that you literally walked through that process while writing the book about it. I mean, right. it's so, so interesting. And- it really
2: was, by the way, the first two chapters are like embarrassingly bad. <laughs> I'm not even sure that I saved them that yeah. first draft. Um, I think I might've, I think I might've like promptly, I don't know. I should look. Cause if I still have them, I, I should go back and read them in horror uh, and be incredibly thankful that those do not appear in this
1: book. <laughs> well, maybe you'll send them to me and we'll put them in the show notes. So that so the whole world no, can I'm, see them.
2: literally like there's, I don't, I think if someone read these, they'd be like, how could this person even call themselves a writer? <laughs> and they were so terrible.
1: That's awesome. Well, you know, what it reminds me of also is, um, the, the book, Good to Great, um, mm-hmm. you know, he wrote about uh, facing the brutal facts, right? Yeah. And, you know, to me, I think as you continue to get more mindful about, hey, you know, someone's not attacking me, they're providing feedback that is ultimately going to be useful for me in the long run. And do I do I appreciate their feedback? You know, they're not attacking me, you know, some people may be attacking you just to attack you before the show, we were talking about reading reviews, right on okay. on your books, like, Seth Godin told you, don't read your reviews. You said, I'm still reading my reviews. I'm not taking his no, advice, I, but I should be taking his advice. I
2: should be taking his advice. Like I didn't purposely not take his advice.
1: Right. I know. His I know.
2: advice was really good. Right. I was like, oh no, I need to know. <laughs> it's like, it's like pressing a bruise. It's like, I need to <laughs>
1: <laughs> right. But, but you get this feedback and it allows you to make better decisions, right? It allows right. you to tweak. And so ultimately in the long run, it may have been painful in the short term, but in the long run,
2: I actually have to say, and it's true. Cause I, I will say this, you know, you sort of sort through the mix. Seth's, Seth's point was, um, you know, you have to know your audience, right? Mm-hmm. But that's not to say that the reviews aren't going to have anything good in there. Right. So, yeah. so the, there were reviews where there were people who clearly, like were Taleb fans who, you know, obviously he's going really deep into the math and whatever. And they would, you know, they would sort of say like this, this book is covering old ground or it's a little bit simple, but I, that was fine for me because I don't, I, that's not really my audience, right? Like he, he's going into a place that's like much, much deeper and kind of high level and mathematical. And I'm trying to uh, be pretty math free when, when I'm talking about this, cause I'm sort of like trying to go broad, right? A little bit broader. So that, that wasn't so bothersome to me that there were some people who were like, this book is too simple. Um, it's like, okay, that's fine. You're not my audience, but there was a consistent, there was a consistent critique through the reviews that I read, which was um, that had to do with repetitiveness. And what's interesting is that I actually had cut out from the, from sort of the final draft, like the, the sort of, here's the completed book sent to my editor, which isn't the final draft, but that's the, I'm sort of considering it done at that point. Um, and I cut about 8,000-ish words, which were just trying to get rid of repetition, because I know that for me, I just, um, I have this problem of feeling like I want to sort of imagine the critique from somebody, and then I'm sort of trying to get in front of answering that. Um, and so I will frame arguments in many different ways. And it's very small changes in the nuance and what I'm kind of saying, just because like I'm trying to be like extra thorough.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: the thing is that like a lot of times when I'm like trying to like add a little bit of nuance to some, something, it's really big in my head, but it's very small in the reader's Had And so it just comes off as repetitive to the reader. And and that's me just sort of like actually speaking of defensiveness. It's a little bit defensive in the way that I write where I'm trying to sort of get out in front of critiques. Mm -hmm. What was interesting was that um, I was having a conversation with someone whose book I just sort of like did an edit on for them. And I could see that for them too. And it was a comment that I gave to them. And I said, look, I have this problem as well. Right, but I can see a few places where, and it tends to come from, from people who have academic backgrounds because this is what happens when you have like reviewer one, two, and three, right? And it's like it is trying to get out in front of those things. And I said, think about your audience because I feel like sometimes you're sort of writing in this way where you're trying to answer people who are very high level. Um, so you, see, I've seen it in other people, but it was really, it really is a problem for my, myself. I, I do, I do get repetitive. Um, so. And that was after taking eight thousand words out. By the way, you can imagine what, what happened before I took those words out. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I read How to Decide, actually, I really kept that in mind, and I was like, you know what? I need to be really careful. I need to say I need to say and explain enough, and try to really get to that, but no more. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I think How to Decide is a more efficient book. Um, Than thinking in bets. So it's not like there's nothing good that comes from reading reviews. Like there was a legitimate critique, which was, you know, thinking in bets is a little bit repetitive. And I get it. You know, it doesn't read repetitive to me because I'm like, no, there's this very slight thing that I was trying You know, but I understand to a reader why it
1: seems repetitive. Well, it reminds me of also like Jordan B. Peterson says, it's like, you know, if there's a monster under the rug, look at it, face it, let's see it and let's deal with it. Is there something that I can learn from this or is this an irrational critique? And, you know, let's look at it from that perspective. So I think that's really interesting. And, um, you know, another thing you mentioned, you don't have a ton of math in your book, but I do think that you do talk a lot about probability. And one thing I find to be fascinating is just the concept of resulting and just how you sort of, how you see that. So could you explain the audience if they haven't read the book, what do you mean by that? And how do you utilize that in your own decision-making?
2: Yeah, sure. So um, so let me start off with an example so that people can sort of, understand from an example what's going on with resulting and then and then we can talk about like how how you might think about it and how you might address it so if we go back to the 2016 election um obviously hillary clinton lost do you remember what are the three states that she lost that really mattered
1: was it ohio Florida? no she
2: actually she, no she knew she was going to lose ohio
1: okay um wisconsin wisconsin michigan,
2: uh-huh
1: michigan and was it uh i don't know what the other one is it's my home state Oh, your home state, Pennsylvania. Yeah. Right? Come on. Yeah, yeah exactly.
2: Go. So she lost those three states, right? I forgot
1: about that, actually. I forgot that she lost that one. Interesting. Yeah, she did. Yeah. She
2: lost Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, uh, uh, and Michigan. Um, and actually, uh, like, I was just looking at a clip of um, uh, Biden uh, being interviewed by Megyn Kelly on, like, the Today Show. This was from a little while ago where they're talking about uh, that she made a really big mistake not not campaigning there. And that's, I think you would agree, like that's kind of the general, like everybody in the public agrees she made this very big mistake. Like it was a really big blunder. Um, so, and, and she lost those three states by the way, by combined votes of, I think, I think it was like 77,000ish or 80,000ish, wow. like across those three states. So she loses those three states. Obviously she loses the election and now for three and a half years, nearly four, uh, everybody's in complete agreement that she really bungled her campaign strategy and, and really made a huge mistake because she was spending her time more in like Florida, uh, New Hampshire, North Carolina, Arizona, and those states were all polling kind of toss upy. y And uh, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin were pulling pretty far ahead. You know, she was, she was certainly outside, It felt like she was outside of the margin of error. So here's the question that I have for you. Um, would you agree that there's probably not a lot that's more crowdsourced in terms of decision making and analyzing people's decisions than a national presidential election.
1: Yeah. It's very top of mind right now. Absolutely.
2: Right. So how many articles have you been reading about people like critiquing Trump's strategy or Biden's oh strategy, talking about where they should be spending, you know, ad money, where, right? Where, where, should the candidates be going? And it's everywhere. Like everybody writes about it. Right. Mm-hmm. So would you agree then that if it was a huge mistake, a humongous mistake for Hillary Clinton to not be campaigning so much in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan, that during the campaign, there would have been lots of people writing about that.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Right? Because you have like every political like uh, strategist and pundit and like people crawling out of Silicon Valley data analysis, right? To like do their things on medium, right? Like everybody has something to say about it. So one would have assumed that if that were a huge mistake, that somebody would have been writing about it at the time, right? Mm -hmm. So I did a Google search because I was like, well, let me see what was kind of going on here. And it turns out that, yes, there are like pages and pages and pages of articles talking about how she bungled um, these states and like what a mistake it is. But the interesting thing about those articles is the first one appears on November 9th, 2016. You know why that's an important date.
1: Hindsight bias, right?
2: (laughs) So the election was on the 8th. So this is like a really good example of, 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 of resulting. Now hindsight bias gets involved here too. And I'll tell you how. Mm. So, so did, but this tells us what resulting is. So basically what resulting is, is you say, I know what the outcome is. She lost those three States. So therefore I can work backwards to understand what the quality of the decision was. Mm-hmm. But like, well, first of all, we can do the thought experiment really easily. If she had won those three States, I don't think anybody would have been saying she made a mistake to be campaigning in Florida and New Hampshire and Arizona and North Carolina. because Nobody would be talking about it. Um, but the other thing that people kind of forget is that the outcome is, you know, there's a lot of luck involved. It's very swingy. And then the other thing about your decision process is that, You only know what you know. So in this particular case, the inputs are going to be polling. And while it's true that it turned out there was a polling error, by definition, you can only tell there's a polling error until after the vote has been taken. That's just Mm -hmm. definitely, definitionally (laughs) true. And it wasn't like you could have surmised like there was something bad going on with the polling because like the national polling turned out to be pretty dead on. Florida and New Hampshire actually were toss ups. They, they pulled pretty dead on as well. And interestingly enough, there were states that went in the other direction. So she won like Virginia, for example, by a much bigger margin than the polls actually were saying she should have won it by. So, so like polling errors can go in both directions as well. So, and this is why nobody was writing about it at the time because we're all sort of in the same state of knowledge and nobody's saying that was a mistake. So therefore she did not make a mistake. Like period, I mean, assuming that she didn't have different polling than everybody else did, there there's no way to say that she made a mistake because um, you're all you're doing is over-indexing to the actual outcome and that's casting a shadow on your ability to actually see what the, the quality of the decision itself at the time was. So that's the resulting problem is we look at the result of an outcome and we use that to derive the quality of, of a decision, but that's like saying um, if you flip a coin and I call heads and it lands heads that I made a decision, good decision to call heads, like that's neither here nor there. I was, you know, right. Like it's not a good decision or a bad decision. It would depend on if we we're betting, was it, you know, so like if you were laying me a dollar 10, I, it doesn't matter if I call heads or tails, I'm just making a good decision to actually play mm-hmm. and whether I win or lose is neither here nor there to whether it was good for me to take a dollar 10 on a 50, 50 coin flip. Right. So, Um, And then to your point, we also get hindsight bias, like adding to the ruckus. So the other thing that ends up happening is that not only do we have this resulting problem where you say, okay, she lost, so therefore she made poor decisions, but we misremember what we knew at the time. So hindsight bias kind of causes two things to happen. One is it makes the result feel inevitable. That's how kind of we end up with resulting, right? Uh, Because if it's inevitable, you should have known it was coming. Um, But the other thing is that we get what's called memory creep, which is we'll think we knew something at the time that we didn't actually know. So um, that's what's happening here as well. Because So I pitched this, actually. I pitched wanting to write about this Clinton thing to an editor at one of the big three newspapers. And his response to me was, well, I'm not going to run this because I did know that at the time. (laughs) and all my friends were talking about we're all talking to each other and we're reading about it and i'm like you're an editor of a newspaper you could have put it in the pages of your newspaper (laughs) like can you produce the article like why were you keeping this secret which by the way would have been a really interesting contrarian take that i imagine lots of people would have read Mm -hmm. but weirdly you didn't write about it (laughs) but he's like totally sure that he knew this at the time and that actually brings up like, okay, so what is the way to kind of like deal with this? Because this all sort of wraps into something I call the paradox of experience, mm-hmm. which is that experience is certainly necessary to learn, but, um, but actually it can interfere with becoming a better decision maker because we like over-index on the outcome and then that kind of messes up the lessons we're learning, which we can see with the Clinton example. But this also tells us a little bit how to solve it. Because the only reason that I know all of this about the Clinton example is because of Google. Because I can Google it. There's just an evidentiary record. In this case, a lack of one. But I know, I know that if people were writing about it, it would have been on Google. I would be able to find it. Right. Right. And that tells you like a lot about what you need to do in order to address this stuff, which is to have these evidentiary records where you can go kind of and circle back. And we can see like, it's not for nothing that we do this. It really does have a very bad effect on our future decision-making because I can see it actually in some of the campaign stuff now, right? Where I see all of these people like saying, you know, oh, Joe Biden better spend a lot of time in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. And it's like, well, maybe not. You know, it kind of depends on like, right now, in at least Michigan and Wisconsin he's pulling pretty far ahead. So it maybe looks like Florida would be a better place for him to spend his time Arizona, which really is pulling as a toss up, you know, North Carolina. So what if now that campaign shifts too much of its resources, because it's looking at that and assuming that that there was, all, there were all these mistakes made, or like, assuming that there must be a polling error this time because there was a polling error last time. And what I would say to that is, well, first of all, I would say there's actually less likely to be a polling error in those three states because I think the pollsters probably are more sensitive to it right now and trying to sort of fix whatever the methodological problem was as it relates to those three. And second of all, as I said, a polling error could go both ways. Who says that it has to go in, in Trump's favor this time? It could actually go away from Trump. Mm-hmm. And, you're, you know, you're going to see this change in behavior, and you can see it in the way people are talking about the breast belt and this sort of, like, fear, you know, around all of that happening. And I think there's probably a little bit of misuse of resources happening right now because of the paradoxic experience, because of resulting.
1: Mm-hmm. You know what, I find it so to be so fascinating as an investor, as a real estate investor, because you know, a lot of my colleagues or, you know, industry colleagues or others in the space, you know, we'll study each other. We study each other and we say, you know what, they, they've created great results. What has been their process? And if you look back, a lot of a lot of the process has been the result of good decisions, but a lot of it has been based on luck or, you know, mm-hmm. circumstances or what have you. And so it's very, very interesting. And it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier. It's like surrounding yourself with people who are going to give you feedback based on the quality of your decisions, not necessarily the quality of the outcomes because of yeah. the probability. So talk to me a little bit more about that.
2: Well, so, so interestingly, actually, if I can just circle back for a second, I, you, you just said something really important, which is like some of it's been luck and some of it hasn't. What I see in like real estate and actually in stock investing as well um, is that when we think about resulting and our willingness to actually go in and try to dig around to explore the luck that might be there, is we, we can kind of think about a, a, a two by two relationship between decision quality and outcome quality, where you have like good, good, which would be uh, an earned reward. Um, good, bad, that would be bad luck. Uh, and then a bad decision that results in a good outcome would be like dumb luck, and then a bad decision that results in a bad outcome would be uh, just dessert. So that's where like people are putting Clinton, right? They're, but, but they're doing it by looking at the outcome, right? Um, so what I think is pretty interesting is that when we think about, okay, when we look at an outcome, how much are we sort of willing to dig around in here to imagine that luck might've actually played quite a big role? And it turns out that that's asymmetrical. And this is actually a really big problem with trying to solve for resulting, which is that we love to dig around in the bad results. And the reason that we love to dig around in the bad results is that, um, well, you can kind of win to it, right? Like, okay, I lost money, I feel sad, but maybe at least the decision-making was good. So I'm gonna dig around in there. Maybe it turns out that I actually didn't lose money because of my bad decision-making. I lost money because like there was some luck involved. Okay. So we're very eager to go and dig around in in the bad results, but we are not at all eager to go and dig around in the good results. Mm -hmm. Reason is that if you win, you're like, I feel pretty good about myself. I'm a good (laughs) decision maker. Look at me. Look at what I managed to create. So if you go digging around in the good results, you're actually risking just losing to that, which is, well, maybe it was just luck that got me here. And the reason why I think about this in terms of like stock market or real estate is that, Both of them are very often in in situations where what would be called beta, which is just like if you indexed, if you just sort of bought the real estate market in a particular area and you didn't really make any active decisions about it, that you would do pretty well, right? Because we have periods where real estate is just kind of on an upward march. Um, Certainly the stock market in general over time is on an upward march. So, what I think is interesting about that is that in, in any kind of investing, people can invest, they can have po- positive outcomes. In other words, they can be doing better than zero, but they don't actually dig around in there to see, what well, would I be doing better if I were like just in an index fund? Right. So if the real estate market is like going up at, you know, it just happens to be like a super hot, hot, hot market or whatever. And like, you know, over the past five years, it's kind of gone up like 5% year over year or 10% year over year. And you've been doing your active strategy and you're earning 7% year over year instead of 10% year over year. It's pretty easy to feel good about yourself, but you're actually just lucky because you're doing worse. (laughs) You're doing worse than if you took a passive strategy, right? Um, And so I actually find that really interesting, like these spaces where you can win but if you actually look at it against an index, you're losing. But because of resulting, we don't actually dig into that to actually discover that. So mm-hmm. I know that was a little bit of a tangent, but it just kind of made me think about that.
1: <laughs> well, we're all about tangents here, so thank you for that. Okay. We we love we love the tangents, and especially when we when we get to explore that beautiful mind of yours. And you know, one of the reasons why I was so excited to talk to you today is because really, you know, it's what what my mentor Tony Robbins says is that. It is in your moments of decision that your destiny is shaped. And I know that that's the case, not only for your life, but also for your business. And one of the things that you, I anticipate that you're talking about in your new book is really the six steps to better decision-making. So could you talk a little bit about that and maybe go into some detail there?
2: Yeah, sure. So we need to kind of understand really at its core, what is a decision? And uh a decision is actually just a prediction of the future. Now, I don't mean a prediction of an exact future, right? Because we can't do that because there's, uh, we, we sort of have two influences on our decision-making. One is just pure luck, right? Even if I had perfect information like I do about a 50-50 coin, uh, there's still three different ways that it could turn out. Uh, very, very occasionally it lands on its edge uh, and then mostly it goes heads or tails. Right, so even though like I perfectly know everything I need to know about the coin, um, I'm just, I can only forecast the future. In the same sense, it's like a 30% chance of rain, a 70% chance of sunshine, right? So, um, and then we add on top of that, that for most of our decisions, we can't actually see the coin. We can can get a glimpse of the coin. We sort of can see partial things about the coin. So I'm not, that's why I wanna say like, I'm not saying you're predicting a future. But what you're doing is you're forecasting the future. In other words, you're trying to get a look at um, the different ways that the, that the world could unfold, given any particular option that you're choosing to exercise. So once we, and why is that? Well, because like, think about it. Like If you're deciding to eat chicken instead of fish at a meal, it's really just a prediction that, that on average, you're going to enjoy the chicken more than the fish. Otherwise, you would choose them. Fish, right mm-hmm. if you choose a particular route to go to work you're just saying that you think that the route that you're you know that you're choosing is going to uh, better um, advance you toward your goals than the route isn't so your goal could be to get to work you know on time your goal could be could be to choose the most scenic route I don't know um, but whatever your goal is for that particular drive, when you choose a particular route, you're saying, I think this, on average, this is going to advance me toward my goals more. So once we kind of understand that, we, we, we can see that a decision is just a, a prediction about the future. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what we're trying to create for ourselves then is something that's sort of crystal ball like, right? That's what we'd like to do is how do we create a process that kind of clo- most closely approximates what a crystal ball would let us see? Here are all the ways that things could turn out. And that's really what we're trying to do. So the first step is actually to do what you don't do when you're resulting, but do this in advance. So when you're resulting, basically what happens, and you can see this with the Clinton example, is there's a particular way that the world turned out, and you sort of forget that there's all sorts of other ways that the world could have turned out too. She could have won all three of those states. She could have won two, but not one, and obviously all those combinations of that. Um, She could have lost two, but not one, right? And there's all those combinations, you know, and so on and so forth. So we, we we sort of lose sight of the fact that there were all sorts of other things that could have occurred. And we think that this is the only thing that could have occurred. So we want to basically when we're thinking about our decision process, to be anti-resulters, and be able to get sort of like the broadest view of what the different ways that things could turn out are. So that's step one is to identify the possibilities. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to say really clearly, that it's reasonable possibilities. So if you're thinking about choosing a particular route to work, I would like you to not think too much about an asteroid hitting the road.
1: Oh, hold on, it's 2020, you just never know. That is true, that <laughs> is true, you
2: never know. You never know, you do, you do never know. But, but you know, the point being like, obviously you wanna sort of live in the world of reasonable, right? Of so when I'm choosing a particular option, should I invest in this project? Should I hire this person? Should I go to this college? Should I take this job? Uh, think about for each option that's under consideration, what are the sort of reasonable set of possible ways that that could turn out. Sometimes they might be kind of like general scenarios. sometimes that could be a particular um, uh, a particular quality of the outcome that you super duper care about. So uh, as an example, um obviously if you're investing in real estate you you want to think about what what are your gains, losses, and you could put those into bins, right? like categories of you know, I'm going to make 0 to 5%, um, you know, I'm going to have 5 to 10%, so on and so forth, what, however you want to define those. If you're hiring an employee, for example, and uh, a lot of the issues that you're having is turnover, you may want to really index on uh, the longevity, right? How, what is, what do I think, how long do I think this employee is going to stay,
0: mm-hmm. right? And
2: that may be the main point of comparison once you reach a bar bar of qualification. So, we can either think sort of in general generalities, like I'm really going to love this job, you know, and I'm going to love the city I'm living in, you know, so that would be a little bit more general. Um, or we can get really down to like their real specifics in terms of what we're thinking about in terms of the possibilities. And it just kind of depends on the type of decision that you're considering. So, so you figure out what those possibilities are. And then from there, you basically figure out what your preference for those different possibilities are. So in general, we're going to like... Uh, we're going to like possibilities that have positive payoffs. In other words, that advance us toward our goals. Uh, and we're going to dislike possibilities that have negative payoffs that cause us to retreat away from our goals. And so you want to just figure that part out. So that's the next step. Um, and then that's all fine and good. And that will get you a lot of the way there. But, but the final step is to actually think about how likely, the final step in this part of the process is think about how likely that each of those things is.
1: So assign a percentage, of probability to each yep. different outcome. Okay, yep. got it.
2: You know, so you want to assign a, a percentage. Now, obviously sometimes you might be um, trying to forecast something like how many widgets are we gonna make, right? So you can either try to forecast the number of widgets or you could put those into bins. Like I said, like you could be like, you know, uh, zero to 10 widgets, 10 to 30 widgets or whatever. And you can forecast the probability that you would, that, that would be the production. Um, so, so now we assign a probability to each of those things. Um, and by the way, I am totally fine, and I, I encourage people to not just assign a probability to put a range around it. Whether you're forecasting the number of widgets that are going to be produced or the probability of a certain number of widgets being produced, it's totally fine to put a range around it. Uh, and the range is actually really helpful because it tells you some, something about how uncertain I am. So... If I tell you it's going to produce 10 widgets, but it could be 9 or 11, that tells you that I'm very certain about how many widgets are going to be produced. But if I tell you it's going to produce 9 widgets, but it could be anywhere from 2 to 30, now that tells you that I'm much less certain about how many widgets there are. And that type of ranging is actually incredibly important because implied in that is a question to you. So when we start talking about how do we get other people involved in the process, this is one of the ways to do that because I haven't now asked you a question by putting a range around it. And that question is, hey Tyler, do you think that you do you know something that would help me narrow this range down? Or do you think my range maybe is even too narrow? Right? So it's just inherent in that is sort of opening it up for discussion. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now we've done that, and now what you can do is basically say, the the outcomes that I prefer, the possibilities that I prefer, would comprise the upside. And the possibilities that I don't like would comprise the downside. We're talking about potentials, right, because these are things that are going to occur in the future. And now I can kind of see, like, what's the likelihood of the upside versus the downside um, compared to the payoffs. And I can get a sense of what the value of that option that I'm thinking about is. and then. Uh, the, the next steps are do that for the other options that you're considering. And now you can compare those in a very apples to apples way. So that's essentially what you want to do. Now, people, I think will say, um, boy, that seems like a lot. And uh, do I really need to do that? And my answer is always, you're doing it anyway. Mm. And I go back to that thing about what do you think you're doing when you, you're deciding whether to order the chicken or the fish? you're literally doing this already. It's just implicit, Mm. right? Because what you're doing is you're thinking about um, which dish am I gonna like better, but you know it's not 100%, it's probabilistic. So you're trying to figure out like, which one am I gonna like better most of the time? And that's all that I'm saying that you're supposed to do, right? And so you're thinking about like, how often is it gonna be spectacular, good, mediocre, terrible, And you're actually doing this anyway. So you should, anytime that you're doing something that's already implicit in the decision that you're making, you're usually better off, not even usually, you're always better off making it explicit so that it actually becomes something that you can examine and sort of look and say, "Mm," you know, how does it outside of what my gut reaction was now that I've actually done this, how does it look to me? And you can show it to other people Comes much better to make it explicit.
1: Are you someone who's seriously looking to elevate your life, your business, your real estate portfolio, your cash flow, your deal opportunities, your access to opportunities, your network this year? Well, if that's you, then I invite you to visit coachwithtyler.com because I'm currently opening up a few coaching spots for people like you who want to close the gap from where you are to where you want to be and really you know, expand that beyond your wildest dreams and explode your business, explode your deal opportunities, explode your vision for what you're looking to create. If that's you, I invite you to visit coachwithtyler.com. I really have to tell you that this is not for everyone. This is only for those who are decisive. They're committed. They're willing to do whatever it takes. They're willing to invest time, energy, and resources into themselves to get to where they want to be and to live a life Without limits, to elevate to a life without limits, which is really what we're all about on this show. If that is you, again, I invite you to visit coachwithtyler.com. Again, that's coachwithtyler.com. You're almost bringing it from the subconscious to the conscious through walking through this, this decision making steps, right? These, these six steps. Yeah. Would you agree? Yeah,
2: because I think that, um, you know, I'm, I, the, the big problem is that we tend to, we, we have a tendency to allow these things to live in intuition or gut. And I find it really interesting because I think this is sort of back to that thing of me saying, like, I've realized, like, you just need the help of other people. Mm -hmm. Um, When you think about gut decision making, first of all, I I always want to say, like, why are people so proud? Like, my gut told me so. Like, I've got a really well-honed gut. And I think that it's because if it lives in your gut and it doesn't become, like, an object that you could examine, that then it's got, like, a magical power like it's magic and special only to you Uh, and so therefore when you make decisions by your gut that actually work out well I think that you feel like like you own that decision better and I think it's hard for people to get to the second order um thinking or or you know being able to like examine their own thinking where they can say like the ability to say no, I want other people to examine it. Like that's actually going to make my decisions better. And that should be what I own and part of my identity. I think that's like a, a step that doesn't come naturally to us. So I think, first of all, that's a little bit why people love to talk about like their gut decision making. It's such a great gut decision maker. Yeah. But the second problem with it where you're talking about like, okay, taking th- things from like the subconscious to the conscious is that in order to become better decision makers, we can see this like, look, that cognitive illusion of resulting is really, really strong. Right, I know that I know this Clinton example. I know that Pete Carroll's pass play at the end of the 2015 Super Bowl was actually quite a good play. I know that when they pulled the pitcher in the seventh inning and then ended up getting creamed in the World Series, that that was a totally fine decision. But even so, because I know it worked out poorly, it's it's still hard for me. Like a visual illusion, you can't unsee. Mm-hmm. These cognitive illusions are really hard to unsee. So, or unthink. So, like, I am just really aware of that. And what I say is if you don't take it into something's explicit, it's going to be incredibly hard to address and discipline these biases. Because if I can't examine it, a thing that I cannot examine is very hard for me to spot. So, I open this book really defining what a tool is and why, um, why it is that the gut, it doesn't, doesn't constitute a decision tool. Because if you think about it, like, okay, so what what is a tool? It's an implement, right, that you would use uh, to accomplish something that is going to reliably accomplish that same thing if you use the tool in the exact same way each time. So we can think about, like, a screwdriver. I know that I can reliably put it in a screw, and I can, you know, I'll turn it. And it will produce this result, which is the screw will will end up in the wall, and it's a very repeatable process if I use the implemented in, in the in the same way. But the other thing about that is that you can watch me use that tool, and you can comment on no, you shouldn't be using a Phillips head; you should use a flat head, or you could tell me that that's not the right tool for that particular job. Right? You could say you really need an electric one because you know. You're not actually able to get that in because you're trying to screw that thing into metal using your hands or whatever. Um, But you can actually comment on it. Mm -hmm. The other thing that's really important about a tool is that I have to be able to hand the tool to you and explain to you how you would use the tool such that you could actually produce, you know, hopefully similar, similar results depending on how, you know, coordinated you are or whatever. Um, what your fine motor skills are, um, that you would be able to produce that same result and that I could then watch you use that tool and I would be able to help you to figure out if that was good or bad. So this is what this is what we need in our decision-making process in order to become better decision-makers is we have to actually have tools in that sense. So with gut, gut is by definition like a black box. It's totally into intuition. It's totally subconscious. There's nothing that I get to examine as an outside observer. And the thing about your gut is it's not going to reliably produce the same result over time. I mean, this is Danny Kahneman's new book with Olivier Siboney and um, Cass Sunstein is literally about this problem that mm. decision-making is very noisy. Um, and they call it, it's called the occasion noise. And, you know, if I get you and you, you make a decision one day, and then a week later, I catch you and I present you the same decision again that you're making with your gut, um, you'll, I'll get a different result from you. Mm. So it's not, you're not using it in the exact same way every single time. And I can't examine it. It's a black box. And I can't look over there and say, listen, this is where you're, you know, I could, I could see inside that process that your gut was using and here are the things that I would pick apart. It's, it's like by definition, just a gestalt. Mm. Right. So like, how do I actually examine the component parts? How do I actually hone that? And I, and I, that's why, I think you have to be taking these things out into the open and say, let's make it so that we can actually examine those things. Um, Because otherwise I can't, I I kind of, how am I supposed to improve decision-making otherwise?
1: Right. Well, I'm glad you brought up Kahneman because I thought of, you know, thinking fast and slow and system one and system two. And, you know, it is about the intuition. It is about more of your your frontal lobe sort of uh, logical mind versus your irrational, perhaps more survival mind. And I find it to be fascinating. Um, you're really kind of boiling it down to examining your own cognitive illusions and your own biases and recognizing that, all right, your gut may be saying something, but there may be some cognitive illusion built into that there may be some bias built into that there may be a lot of it so <laughs> right. you know
2: actually so for for people who have read um uh for people who have read thinking fast and slow you know kahneman talks a lot about inside and outside view i actually have a whole chapter on it in the new book um chapter 6 and w- really when you think about inside view so so just for people who aren't familiar with it the inside view is the world from your own perspective from driven by your own experiences, mm-hmm. by, by the the mental models that you tend to apply to the world, by, by your own expertise, um, which is not necessarily a good thing. See Phil Tetlock for, for details on that. <laughs> um, so so when we think about cognitive bias, that's living in the inside view. Because what think about it? If, if every it's from your own perspective. Like think about something like confirmation bias. I'm trying to confirm my beliefs, not
1: yours. Right, mine. right. <laughs>
2: and that's an inside view problem. Uh, availability bias, inside view problem, because I judge things to be more frequent that I personally can recall. That's my own perspective. The way the the information that I have is kind of at hand. Um, you know the better than average effect. Like I think I'm better than average at things than I actually am. Um, so basically like we can literally walk through like whether it's illusion of control or whatever, these, these are things that are really inside view problems. And uh, so that's really where cognitive bias like lives and thrives. Mm-hmm. Right. And guess what the inside view is that, that by definition, that's your gut. Right. Because that your gut, that's only your own like nose, right. It's like my nose for value and I've got good instincts and I've got, you know, whatever um, that's obviously going to be an inside view problem. The, the outside view is the world independent of your own perspectives. So that might be things like base rates, um, which is just how often things occur in the situations that you're considering. So uh, if I'm thinking about investing in a project, um, it's really good for me to go see in that market what the base rate is for how a property of that type might appreciate over time.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: That's just like looking at it, not from what I believe to be true, but just in general, and that doesn't mean that, that you should assume that you're only going to perform at the base rate. It just is a place to anchor to. It's like your starting point, right? Um, and then you can think about, but I'm more skillful at, right? Mm. Or maybe I'm less skillful at these things, but I'm more skillful. So, so let me think about how much I can come in above that. But if the base rate is that, oh, you know, oh, oh, year over year, it tends to appreciate 5% and you're looking at a property saying, I think I can make 20% on this that that's a, you know, you better have pretty good justification for why you think you're going to come so so far off the base rate. Right. So that's, Mm -hmm. that's just like not the world as we want it to be true. It's the world as it is. Um, but also the outside view is the perspectives of other people. So how would other people view the situation that you're in, not just because they may have different information, which is very valuable to access, but because even if they're looking at the exact same data, they may come to very different conclusions about it because they may be applying different models. So so, so the gut is the inside view, and then other people offer you a piece of the outside view, right? Like, so we want to sort of get into other people's heads in order to dis- discipline our gut. Now, here's, here's the reason why I really want to make those things explicit, like what is going on in your decision process with your gut, um, and how can we make that explicit, is that for me to really get somebody else's perspective on my situation, it would be good if, if I could compare in an explicit way my process, the way that I'm breaking that problem down, to the way that they would break that problem down. So I can't just have a battle of gut, because then I don't know really what to, to sort of dig into and to figure out like where the dispersion is occurring, uh, because then it's just like gut against gut. I, I want to sort of make those things explicit, and what are the assumptions, right? If you think that you're going to do 20%, uh, when the base rate is five, you need to break out for me what what exactly are the things that you're forecasting that you're going to do so much better than the market. Mm-hmm. Um, I assume you're implying that this is somehow undervalued and that other people aren't spotting the undervalued. Why aren't other people spotting it? Like all those things need to be broken out. Why do you think you're seeing this? Or maybe you think it's valued perfectly, but because of your skill, there are things you're going to be able to do that are going to bring more value than what the base rate would be. Fine, just break those out. You may think that you know something uh, better than the market about what's, what's gonna happen to the real estate market in a year, that you don't feel that you're more skillful um, than other people. It's that you have a different forecast of, of what the, the next year might be great. Say what has to be true of the world in a year in order for this to be able to make that, that type of return and just break all those things out. And then when other people give you an opinion, you can now compare those things in a way that actually allows you to see where the differences are, where, where the agreement is, so that you can kind of hone in on what are the things that you want to talk about. I do want to say, to be clear, I don't think that you're never supposed to make a decision with your gut. What I think is that you need to be able to break this stuff out so that you can get a really good feedback loop, so that you're able to spot the places where your gut is kind of sending you into a bad place, And spot the places where your gut is kind of getting you into a good place. And then just reinforce that kind of good thing that's happening over here and and tweak and repair that kind of not so great thing that's happening over here. And then not only that, what that allows you to do is we know that sometimes your gut can get you to really good decisions when the market is a certain way. But then if something shifts out in the world, you won't notice it. And you'll keep sort of making the same decision, even though the market has changed and and just checking in on it and doing this process where you're creating a feedback loop is going to allow you to spot that a little bit better so that you can sort of always be sort of honing and tweaking what that system one decision making looks like.
1: Yeah, that's super valuable. And it's almost like what we were talking about earlier, progress over perfection to a certain degree. It's about making progress, it's about cleaning up the edges and getting, gaining more awareness of your own biases, of your own illusions, and starting to recognize where those patterns start to show up. And so that you can make better long-term decisions because you know what, what we're all about is about long-term success. And that is about the compound effect of great decisions over time in your business and otherwise. And so Annie, my goodness, I could talk to you for literally hours upon hours upon hours, and if we're not careful, we might do that, but I want to be respectful of your time, and I want to go into our rapid fire section because I've got a few Hard-hitting, oh, okay. Amazing questions for you. Uh, this is the Rare Air Questionnaire, which we're all about being uncommon. And this whole conversation has been about being uncommon. It's about asking tough questions to yourself. It's about surrounding yourself with others who are going to make you feel perhaps a bit uncomfortable at times so that you can progress, so that you can continue to elevate. So as being a prolific author yourself with a lot of beautiful color-coded books behind you, I'd have to know, I'd have to ask you, if you had to point to two or three of the most impactful books that you've read over the past few years, what would those be and why
2: oh my gosh let me see well let's see I don't I don't know if I'll be able to find them hold
1: on I'll tell you while you're looking for that that yours is absolutely one of the most impactful for me and many others thinking in bets I would highly recommend I'm super excited about
2: how to decide coming out soon that's super nice
1: absolutely
2: Uh, yeah you know I just put these together so I'm not exactly sure where everything is But, um, let me think there's so, oh gosh, it's so hard. There's so many, (laughs) by the way, this one, this one is a great book. Uh, it's long, but this is behave
1: um, behave by Robert
2: Sapolsky. Sapolsky. Uh, This is pretty amazing. It's really, he's a neurologist. So he's really talking about sort of the, the biology and neurology of human decision making. Um, so anyway, okay. Uh, oh my gosh, there's so many. Uh, The Success Equation by Michael Mobison, which is like one of the best explorations of luck and skill ever. So everybody should read that book. Super Forecasting by Phil Tetlock. When I talk about this this idea of like, how are you actually sort of forecasting the future and thinking about what the possibilities are, the payoffs, the probabilities, if you want to go deep on that topic, that is the book for you. Because that will go much deeper than I go on, I, on, on that topic, and it's it's really incredible. Um, that book. He also has another book, by the way, called Expert Political Judgment, less known, uh, but which is really good, just about kind of like uh, motivated reasoning and confirmation bias and the kind of stickiness of our beliefs. That I, I think would be good. Um, oh my gosh, Thinking Fast and Slow. But I feel like everybody recommends that for <laughs> years. Um, uh, the Biggest Bluff Here by Maria Konnikova. Mm. This is great. Here, I'll hold that one up for you.
0: There you go. That's awesome. Um,
2: She's a journalist. She also happens to have a PhD in psychology. Uh, She decided she wanted to learn about luck, so she went to learn poker with my mentor, actually. Um, Eric said, and she ended up winning a championship. Look at that. Wow. Um, So anyway, that's also a really nice exploration of kind of uncertainty and luck and skill and, like, what's the influence of luck in your life? And kind of part memoir. She's a New Yorker writer, so it's written much more beautifully than anything I could ever write. (laughs) which is incredible. I've got range down here, right here. Uh, oh, beautiful. this is an amazing one. This is also great. Perfectly confident.
1: Excellent. If you're watching on YouTube, she's holding all the books up. If you're not watching on YouTube, you might want to check it out. She's got a beautiful um, book stack. Yeah, behind It's, it. it's
2: hard because there's so many, there's so many amazing books. Oh, oh, I'll tell you what, what else? Ooh, this came from yellow. Where's I don't even know where my yellow books are. <laughs> okay. Here's an amazing one. Morgan Hazel, the psychology of money. Mm. If you know what's good for you, you will read that book. I love That's that an incredible book. An incredible I love your
1: fascination book. with psychology, and I, I share that one hundred. percent
2: here's one too, which is great. It's called Super Thinking. Ooh. And this is just a book of mental models. It's like almost like a fast-paced mystery. It reads like it's just mental model after mental model after Ooh. mental model. That's awesome. Incredible. <laughs> I thought, oh, it Indistractable <laughs> here by Near, uh, near Ial. But then, actually, this is an amazing book. The Model Thinker
1: from oh my Scott gosh. Page.
2: It's so, so incredible. So this is uh, applying mental models to solve problems.
1: Annie, I feel like we're becoming best friends right now. I love it.
2: I just don't even know. It's like there's so many great books. I can't pick just one.
1: This is amazing. This is amazing. That's,
2: that's, what, that's what I'm giving you for the moment. I mean, And by the way, I apologize to anybody's amazing book that I left out. But, like I, you know, we go on. Okay.
1: Absolutely. Well, I love the curiosity because you're probably like me where it's like, I got to know, I have to know. So I got to yeah. go get it and I got to dive into it. And the lesson is that there's so many different impactful books that you can read. And there's so many different things, mental models that you can apply to your own life. So I love that. And thank you for sharing all that. That's awesome. Yeah.
2: And by the way, I just want to, I want to tell people something. Yes. Um, I feel like people can get really overwhelmed by like thinking about like reading, but like I held up behave, which was quite long. Mm-hmm. um, or, you know, thinking fast and slow, which is quite long. Yep. And what I want to tell people that they need to remember is that they don't have to finish the books they read.
0: Mm. And this is funny
2: because I'm an author, but, um, you know, basically, you know, some books are going to give you amazing lessons and some books aren't going to speak to you in the same way. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you should not feel bad if you don't finish a book. You know, I, I've read books where I've gotten kind of part of the way through. And what I realize is I've kind of like gotten what I needed out of it. Um, and I kind of put it down and I'm done. Yeah. And, you know, and then there's other books. I'm like page turner all the way till the end because I feel like every, every page has a gem. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and I think that's okay. Like it, it relieves a lot of pressure off of you. And I think it allows you to start books more easily. And, you know, the great books, once you start them, they, they pull you in. But I think that when you feel like when you're looking at that book and you haven't started it yet and you're thinking, oh my God, I'm going to have to read this all the way till the end, it can kind of stop you from actually getting into it and just realize, like, I'm going to read it. I'm going to see how I like it. Right. And then I'm going to go. Uh, The other thing is that for a lot of these concepts, you can get a lot of what you want out of podcasts.
1: Absolutely. But I will
2: say, just like as a pitch, (laughs) if you hear someone you love on a podcast, please buy their book anyway, because support the author, not me personally, but like support you know people are really working hard to put their ideas out into the planet absolutely you know obviously it's nice to support the author but if you love their podcast buy their book
1: well, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think podcasts allow you to get to know someone on a deeper level, but then also have the opportunity if you do resonate with that person to dive deeper into their work. Yeah. And I know one thing that we'll talk about here just shortly is that we are going to have a preview chapter for the listeners of Elevate for your new book. And so we'll put a link in the show notes of how they can download that. Uh, so super excited about I that. Think, That's- I
2: think the- Preview chapter is about how to dis- when, when and how and why you should be deciding faster most of the time, which, by the way, is probably counterintuitive for people who just listen to me talk <laughs> uh, because I'm talking about mapping out a lot of stuff. But actually, for most of the decisions you make, you can actually speed up and go faster. Mm-hmm. Um, so hopefully uh, people will read that chapter and see that I have a lot to say about how you can break through analysis paralysis and just kind of move fast and break things, as they say.
1: I love it. Annie, what's the biggest way that you elevate your life on a daily basis?
2: Huh. The biggest way that I do that. Let me think.
1: Thinking fast and slow at the same time. Yeah, I, look- I mean,
2: it's hard for me because I feel like it's a little bit of, it's, it's, a, it's a little broad. It is. Because I, I kind of think about, I really try to be intentional about thinking about the things for me, that are, that really make a difference to my happiness. Um, and I try to, and I try to make sure that I'm always making time in my schedule for that. So an example is like, I get a ton of joy from playing tennis. I actually played doubles this morning. I'm very lucky in the pandemic because you can do that outdoors. Um, but uh, so, so, I, so like I try to fit in like tennis and if I can't do tennis, some kind of physical exercise, like whether it's hiking or um, whatever, it's just really, really important to me in terms of my happiness. Also, the, the way that I eat is actually incredibly important for my happiness. Food really, for me, really drastically affects my mood. If I'm not eating healthy, um, I'm not as happy. And so I really try to keep my eye on the long-term And make sure that I'm kind of living those goals, like, so that I'm doing those, I'm making sure that I do those things. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think that it has to do with things like that. Like, there's, you know, connection to friends and other people, and I'm very, very close with my siblings and trying to make sure that I'm connecting with them. So a lot of it has to do with, I think, for me, because I'm so busy with work, that my, what I'm doing for me in terms of elevation is thinking about those things that are outside of work that can really kind of end up getting pushed aside and making sure that I'm always making space for those things.
1: Yeah. well, that's great. You know? Yeah. That's great. Thank you for that. And I think it's, it's a great reminder to take your own advice at times, because you know, this is advice that you take, it's thinking about your future self. You were talking about eating well, and how are you going to feel? Because there's times where it's like, I want to just feel well right now. And I want to eat something that tastes good, but I'm not going to feel good. So I love that. And I'd love to know beyond that. I mean, what's the biggest way that you elevate others around you?
2: Oh my gosh, it's, that's, it's so interesting. I love these questions. <laughs> um, like I immediately start thinking about like my children or my husband or my friends who I play tennis with. I mean, obviously I have consulting, so hopefully I'm helping to elevate them. So I do a lot of like decision coaching. and Yeah. You know, so I'm going to put that aside and I'm thinking more on a personal level. Um, I Here's the thing. I, I I think that I actually think I know what it, I think I know what it is. I am very conscious that first of all, that when you love people that you should say so Mm. often that you can't say that too often, Um, which was not my necessarily my experience growing up. And I think that's why. So I, I sometime at some point, I just started really expressing that. And then, the other thing is that and this this is something that I thought about maybe 15 years ago or so. I just kind of realized that like you know I along with a lot of people were very quick when I was upset with somebody to to say it and and to express sort of whatever it was that I was upset with or displeased with but that it was asymmetric. When I was feeling a lot of gratitude for somebody or when I thought that they had done something quite nice or uh you know that like i just appreciated something that i had done that i wasn't really saying that as much and so i just started really kind of intentionally making sure that i was saying to the people around me you know that was really nice like i really appreciate that you did that and it's it's like such a small thing um but I think it's a really important thing because I do think that it's very asymmetric. Like when we're delivering feedback, that the feedback tends to be negative, not positive. Right. Um, But meanwhile, I have lots of positive thoughts about people around me all the time. I just wasn't saying them. And so I think it was was about 15 years ago that I started like really adding this intentionality into that. Um, So I think, I think that's something that I actually do pretty, I think I do pretty well um, and then the last thing I think I do is that I, I'm not someone who really starts yelling at people in the moment because I am um, think I, I travel to the future a lot in my head. Mm-hmm. And what I realize is that I don't think there's been a lot of times where I really lost my crap with somebody where I didn't regret it later, you know? And then also if you're just sort of thinking about what's the long-term goal that you're trying to achieve um, usually being upset and yelling at somebody isn't particularly helpful. Um, <laughs> right. Usually it's better to sort of like have a conversation, try to get them there. And understand that sometimes you just have to say, like, particularly with kids, like, I hear your side, nevertheless, you're grounded. Right. But not to have an argument, not to try to convince them that I'm right, um, but just to have a dialogue about it, let them understand what my thinking is. They don't need to agree with me just to let them understand what my thinking is calmly. Let them understand what me understand what their thinking is. And then sometimes I change my mind and sometimes I say, nevertheless. (laughs) <laughs> but I, I, I used to be, I think I used to be someone who, who like yelled a lot. Um, yeah, I mean, raise my voice, you know. And I think I really stopped doing that. And I think that actually is much, it's helpful to me, but I think it's actually much, it's much better for the people around me. And I think that that helps them to sort of be their best selves.
1: That's awesome. I don't
2: know. I think that's it. But it's, that sounds very, like, I don't know. I can also tell you all the really awful things that I do. <laughs> but now I feel like I just told you good things that
1: I do. No, we, we, we know. We're, we're None of us are perfect. We're seeing yeah, progress. Yeah, I feel like
2: perfect. now I need to follow with the list. And by the way, this is all the <laughs> stuff I screw up.
1: No, but it reminds me of, you know, Abraham Lincoln, you know, you hear the story about how he would write these letters, these just terrible, you know, scathing letters to people that he was just, you know, so mad at, or, you know, irritated with or whatever. And he would put them in his, you know, in his drawer and the next day he'd burn it, you know, cause it's like, let's get it out and I'm not going to send this, but you know, yeah. it's about managing your emotions, about thinking in the future about what, what would your future self think about this situation? So uh, I love that. And Annie, what a great conversation. Really, really, yeah. really appreciate you you. taking time. Um, Tell the listeners how they can learn more about you and and what you do.
2: Sure. So, yeah. um, Well, you can go to annieduke.com. That's a good place to go. Um, That is, uh, you know, you can find out how to buy my book there. Uh, I do a newsletter, which I used to do much more frequently, but um, during the process of writing the book, I sort of dropped off, but I assume I'll pick it back up. Although, I don't know. I'm now thinking about another book I want to write. So I don't know. We'll see. Um, But anyway, I just, you can sign up for my newsletter there. Um, Also, I just want to say there's a contact form there. Um, And I think your listeners heard this earlier in the conversation, this sort of evolution of how, how to decide, which came a lot from conversations with people who had read thinking and bets. So I actually mean it when I say use the contact form and reach out to me, just say, hi, (laughs) what do we think? Uh ask me a question, tell me I'm stupid and what I said was dumb. Uh I want to hear all of it. And um uh you know cuz I love those kinds of conversations. I try really hard to respond to everybody who writes. I fail at it. Um I probably get to about 90% of them. So if you don't hear back from me, it's not cuz I didn't like your note. It's just cuz I'm a failure at it. But I try. I get to most of them. See, so, look, you
1: just admitted your failures. There you go. You got it out. Yeah. How do you feel?
2: So, pretty good. (laughs) So, hopefully people will write in through there. You can also find me on Twitter, at Annie Duke. I'm actually quite active over there. Uh, And the last thing is, I would love, another place you can find me, which I would love if people would check out, is the Alliance for Decision Education. Uh, That's a nonprofit that I co-founded. And we're, you know, basically what we're, our mission is that, uh, you know, better decisions lead to better lives and a better society. And when we look at K through 12 education, All of this kind of stuff that we're talking about, all of this amazing work that's being done by people like Danny Kahneman and Cass Sunstein and Richard Thaler and Katie Milkman and Angela Duckworth and, you know, uh, Scott Page and Phil Tetlock, like uh, so many more. All of this incredible work that's being done in the space of, you know, habit change and behavioral psychology and behavioral economics. And decision theory and decision science is has not seeped down into K through 12 education. We're still teaching ninth graders trigonometry. Seems weird. Um, and we're not teaching them like statistics and probability. We're not teaching them how to like examine your own habits or um, to think about these things about like long term goals, you know, short term goals. How do you balance those out? What right. are values? Um, how do you, what does a good decision look like? I mean, I don't know about you, but I didn't have that in K through 12
1: education. Not at all.
2: So what we're trying to do there is say, look, there's this whole, we know so much about this space and this is obviously something that adults are starting to really latch onto and start to dig into. And it's really improving their lives. We need to bring this down into K through 12 so that kids can become better decision makers and they can know how to actually live this process and that's going to improve their lives and it'll improve society. So, uh, Please, everybody, please go check out the Alliance for Decision Education. Would, would love it if you would. Um. That's amazing. spread the word, spread the
1: word. Well, I I just honor the impact that you're having there because I know for sure that we need education reform in this country, in this world. I mean, it is absolutely the case. I mean, I, I know, I can't imagine, you know, where everyone's lives would be if they had this type of information earlier in their life. So kudos to you for that. And just kudos to you for everything that you're doing. Annie, thank you for giving to the world. I encourage listeners to definitely dig into Annie's work because it's absolutely profound. It will absolutely change your life. It will change the way you think, make decisions and, you know, really create new results because at the end of the day, you know, obviously results do have a large degree of luck and, you know, different probabilities and opportunities. But if you can start to make better decisions, you know, that's the, the, your destiny is shaped by that. And so. Here's
2: the way that what I would say to people is like, look, you can make a decision that's going to work out 90% of the time. And yes, on any particular time that you make that decision, you might observe the 10%, the stuff you don't like. That's true, Um, because you don't have control over that. You're gonna observe it 10% of the time, and it may be, you know, part of that 10% may be that particular time. But if over your life, you just make a series of 90-10 decisions, or by the way, a series of 52%, 48% decisions, where 52% of the time it's gonna work out great for you, assuming that you've managed the downside risk properly, that's going to play out over time. You're, you're going to have, you're going to win like so much to that. Um, You just, it's like, you just need to stop getting out of the short termism of like what's one result and start realizing that the accumulation of great decisions over time is, is the only thing that makes your life better because everything else is luck. So You have no control over that. So the thing you have control over is your decisions and your decisions don't have to get that much better to have huge results because it compounds over time.
1: Annie, thank you so much for being on the show today. Really, really appreciate you. And Elevate Nation, I really want to thank you for being here today. I want to encourage you to re-listen to the show because there's so much wisdom here. There's so much that you can apply to your life and really at the end of the day it is about applying it's about taking action it's also about sharing paying it forward who else do you know who would value this conversation today so go ahead and text this to them screenshot this show post it on social media tag Annie and like I said at the end of the day it is about elevating your life it's about elevating your business it's about transforming your life and I know that today's conversation will allow you to do that so Annie thank you again for being here and Elevate Nation thank you so much for tuning in